Science. Science Po. Hello everybody and welcome to Science Po Research Podcast, the podcast when we, where we talk to uh, professors, researchers at Science Po about their work, about how they address the main issues of modern societies. And uh, in this season, in the second season of podcast, we talk about challenges to democracies, internal challenges and external challenges coming from populist politicians, autocratic leaders, and uh, divides and uh, internal disagreements within democratic society. And this is uh, why I'm so happy to have today with me Yasha Munk, uh, who's here in Paris, actually, to promote a French translation of his recent book, Identity Trap. Uh, Yasha Munk, to the listeners of this podcast, doesn't need an introduction, but I would just say that uh, Yasha is now a professor of practice in uh, Johns Hopkins uh, University, and uh, next uh, spring he will be an associate professor at uh, Paris School of International Affairs, our School of International Affairs at uh, Sciences Po. Yasha is also a contributing editor at The Atlantic, senior fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations, a Monihan public fellow at City College. He's a founder of Persuasion, and he's actually a host of his own podcast called uh, The Good Fight. He's also a publisher. Which had at least one excellent episode uh, with Sergey. That's correct. Thank you very much, Yasha. Uh, where I talk about my own book, uh, Spin Dictators. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, that was last year. Um, Yasha is an author of five books, uh, including a book about his own uh, family, A Stranger in My Own Country, uh, about a Jewish family in uh, modern Germany. Uh, the second book was The Age of Responsibility. Uh, the third book, uh, which was a huge bestseller, The People versus Democracy. Uh, the fourth book was The Great Experiment uh, uh, about how diverse democracies function. And I'm very happy to uh, mention that a year ago, Yasha came to Sciences Po to talk about uh, the great experiment. So you can actually watch the recording of this conversation we had a year ago. And uh, this year, uh, Yasha published a very important and uh, very, very, very influential book. Uh, it's it's very recent, but it's already making a lot of uh, impact. The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time. And this is the book, uh, which is now being translated, which is now translated and coming out in French. Uh, this is the book we are going to talk about. So in this book, Yasha talks about identity issues in modern societies. And without uh, further uh, delay, let me welcome Yasha to the podcast and ask Yasha, what is the book about? What is identity synthesis and what is identity trap you're talking about in the book? Well, thanks so much for, for having me on the podcast. I really look forward to this conversation. I look, really look forward to being in, in Paris from, from September teaching here. Um, uh, listen, uh, uh, what I'm struck by over the last decades is the rise of what I think is genuinely a new ideology. And that doesn't happen all that often. Um, you know, I'm an intellectual historian originally by training. That's what I did as an undergrad in Cambridge. And then I did um, political theory uh, for my PhD before I sort of slowly and inadvertently morphed into a sort of scholar of comparative politics. Um, but uh, the arrival of a genuinely new and influential set of ideas is a relatively rare event. Um, and, uh, you know, as somebody who is uh, on the left and from the left, uh, I'm very, very struck by the way in which what it means to be left-wing today has very significantly changed. And so the book is uh, an attempt 
to understand the new ideas about the role that identity does and should play in society, how it should structure how we talk to each other today and how the state should treat uh, all of us. Um, and it does that in four parts, by telling the, the intellectual roots of these ideas, by talking about how they went from being influential in corners of the academy, but pretty marginal to society as a whole, to being deeply influential in mainstream institutions over the course of the last decade or so, by critiquing the main application of these ideas to areas from free speech to cultural appropriation to race-sensitive public policies in part three, and finally by making a case for why a form of philosophical liberalism, uh, a smart form of universalism, uh, can do better at recognizing the genuine injustices that continue to shape our societies, um, but without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Thanks, uh, Yasha. That's indeed actually a very important historical event. If we talk about ideologies of 20th century, Nazism, uh, Bolshevism, the things which are bigger than uh, individual leader, uh, liberal, uh, liberal uh, rights, of, uh, political and civil rights of individuals, this is something where leaders will tell you there is a greater good. You need to tighten your belts or, or, or even sacrifice your lives for something which is bigger than us, bigger than individuals. Today we talk about, you talk about identity, identity synthesis as something which is, again, an ideology where people should sacrifice universal rights. Is that what you, you have in mind when you talk about identity synthesis, uh, identity trap? Yes, so there's different ways of framing what this ideology actually is. So first of all, you know, the elephant in the room, some people refer to this ideology as woke or wokeness. I try to avoid this term. It makes it sound a little bit like an old man shouting at the clouds. So I uh, talk about it, uh, but I think it's really important to have a neutral term that allows us to actually grapple with this body of ideas. You know, some listeners to this podcast might, might think of themselves as socialists. Some listeners might not like socialism at all. But we can all agree to call that body of ideas, which is variegated, not every socialist believes exactly the same things, but it's recognizably a political tradition, um, as socialists. And I think we need some neutral term that both proponents of what I call the identity synthesis and critics of it, like myself, can use to actually have a real conversation. And so I uh, stumbled upon the identity synthesis. I have no great hopes that this is going to be a term that takes over the world the way that David Brooks's bobo became a common term in France. Um, but that at least allows us to have a conversation. Um, and why the identity synthesis? Because it is a set of ideas about the role that identity should play in society. And because it is, as I argue in the book, a synthesis of different intellectual traditions, including postmodernism, postcolonialism, and critical race theory. Now, the way to get at what this ideology is, you can do it historically, as I do it in one part of the book, trying to think through the main themes that emerge from its intellectual history and uh, the way in which that continues to shape activist politics today. Um, the other way to do it, uh, which I do towards the end of the book, is as a kind of rational reconstruction. Uh, this is a term that philosophers use to say when you have a body of ideas and ideology you try to boil it down to the uh, main uh, principles, the main ideas that most of the members of that tradition to some significant degree share that can give a little bit of structure and coherence to an ideology that out in the, in the, in, in the real world is necessarily a little bit inchoate. And so let me perhaps say what, what I take to be the three main 
postulates uh, of the identity synthesis um, if, you, if you do a rational reconstruction like that. It's number one, the claim that to truly understand the world, the main, the principle, the most important prism is identity categories like race and gender and sexual orientation. That's what explains uh, how we interact today and that's what explains big political events. It's the sort of master prism through which to perceive society. Uh, it's a kind of methodological claim. The second claim is, I suppose, uh, a kind of claim about the philosophy of history. And it is saying that uh, not only have countries often failed to live up uh, to their universal values or to their neutral rules, which is evidently true, but that those universal values and neutral rules actually were meant to uh, pull the wool over our eyes. That they were meant to perpetuate forms of racist, sexist, uh, religious discrimination. Um, and that therefore, as the founder of critical race theory, Derek Bell, has repeatedly argued, we haven't really made any progress. That the United States, for example, in the year 2000, were as racist as they were in 1950 or 1850. And then if you uh, buy those two premises, the conclusion flows relatively naturally, which is to make any kind of progress, we have to rip up those universal principles, rip up those neutral rules, and make how we treat each other and how the state treats us, including in you know how to distribute goods and how to organize schools and so on, explicitly depend on the kind of identity group of which you are a part. So basically, that is that is a very uh, interesting proposition. Given that identity usually is signed to you at birth, and you cannot actually change it during your life, you can change gender, but uh, uh, that also creates uh, creates a new identity of a transgender person. You, you cannot uh, change your race, even though some people, have, 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 as uh, we've seen recently, also try to appropriate somebody else's races. But in general, the idea of identity is something that characterizes you at birth. And in that sense, you cannot really be master of your own destiny. To what extent that uh, wor should worry us? To, to, to what extent that should worry other people who want to bridge the gaps between different uh, identities, different ethnicities, different uh, uh, different uh, ways to understand the world based on identity. Yeah, I think you're starting to get to the heart of where my concerns with this ideology lie. Um, uh, as I talk about when I discuss the applications of these ideas to many of our uh, you know, important political, social, cultural debates today, um, there is a fundamental skepticism about our ability to communicate with each other and a fundamental concern about cultural purity. Now, as somebody who grew up in Europe, in German history, people like Richard Wagner were very worried about the influence of the terrible French, as well as, of course, the Jews would have on the purity of German culture. And uh, they claimed, uh, he claimed, and, and other right-wingers claimed, that uh, if you come from a different uh, uh, ethnic or religious group, you're never truly going to understand Germans. Um, and I'm very struck by the fact that today, uh, similar claims are being advanced with a kind of progressive paint job. And suddenly you're saying, you know, if you stand at a different intersection of identities to me, then I truly can't understand you. And rather than basing our political solidarity on the hard-won attempt for me to understand your struggle, to understand injustices you face, and to build solidarity on the basis of our own political 
values, saying actually it goes against my vision of society if you are discriminated against and mistreated, and therefore I'm going to fight for your rights because of my own values about the world. Um, you end up with a set of prescriptions where you're saying, I can't really understand you. Um, I should delegate political judgment to the spokespeople of your group if I believe that you're more oppressed and uh, uh, you know, be a good political ally by deferring my judgment even if I'm not really able to understand you. I think that's a completely unrealistic uh, vision of how political solidarity works, empirically speaking, and it's also a very poor, impoverished vision of how political solidarity might work in normative terms. The same when it comes to something like cultural appropriation, right? There's this claim now that um, particularly members of a more privileged group should really be very worried about ways in which we might be influenced and might be inspired by members of uh, uh, different groups, by cultures of different groups. Um, and that, I think, goes against some of the things that are best in diverse democracies. Virtually all of our culture has been created by mutual cultural inspiration. And you know, sitting in the middle of a city like Paris right now it's great cultural diversity and the way in which uh, different groups end up influencing each other is one of the wonderful things about this country, not one of the bad things. And to take a really stupid example, um, you know, the fact that when I ordered a steak tartare the other day, um, uh, I had a choice of a traditional French um, uh, set of ingredients, but also a more Asian-inspired uh, uh, way of flavoring it. I think that's something that advances French culture. That's not something we should be worried about. Part of the beauty of contemporary, big, diverse democracies is the kind of mutual influence we have. Another way of speaking about this, um, if you allow me to geek out a little bit since this is a more academic podcast, um, is to think about the structural similarity and dissimilarity of this ideology with Marxism. So some people have claimed this is a form of cultural Marxism, that you understand this ideology just by taking Marxism and taking out economic uh, categories like social class and sticking in cultural elements like race, gender, and sexual orientation. I show in the book that that is wrong as a matter of intellectual history. Um, uh, activists today are much more inspired by uh, and cite much more often thinkers like Michel Foucault and Edward Said and Gayatri Spivak and Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw than Marx and Engels, or for that matter, even Gramsci or Marcuse. Um uh, but secondly, there's an important structural dissimilarity. So you could describe Marxism in somewhat similar terms. The key prism for understanding society is social class. The norms and values of bourgeois society are just a cloak for class domination, right? So far, it's pretty similar. But then they say, there's going to be a world revolution, a bit of a black box, not quite sure what happens after the world revolution, but eventually we have a universal class, we've abolished class distinction, and we're all brothers. That third claim is missing from the identity synthesis. The thing that most provokes uh, members of that tradition is the idea that we might abolish race, that we might overcome those kinds of notions. Um, something that I think would be beautiful, but perhaps not realistic. I'm not actually a race abolitionist uh, like some really interesting thinkers today are. Um, uh, but, but, but they really re reject that kind of utopian promise. So the liberatory promise at the end of Marxism uh, uh, which turned out to be false, of course, but but which was attractive for good reason, has has gone out of a window in this ideology. It is telling us that we're always going to be more defined, not less defined, by the groups into which we're born. And so as a result, it inspires practices in the United States, for example, in many elite schools, of teachers going into 
classrooms when kids are eight or seven or six years old, splitting them up by race because they say a good progressive education needs to teach children to conceive of themselves as racial beings. Um, <clears throat> thank you, Yasha, for this distinction between uh, Marxism and uh, identity synthesis. I think it's a it's a very important distinction. Marxism is an optimistic ideology. Marxism says we will be able to solve the inequality, injustice, social injustice problems. Well, I fully agree with you that this promise was false. I lived in a country where a uh, world revolution, well, at least a single country revolution happened. Uh, the injustice continued, but at least official ideology was social mobility, equality of opportunity, education for all. And uh, in that sense, of course, there is a vision of the future which is optimistic, while it is not the case in, in what you're describing. And uh, this, is, this is something that brings me back to your point when you said you're left and uh, you don't agree with this particular set of ideas, identity synthesis. And the question is, how does this set of ideas address the challenge of the Marxist political theory, which is social inequality, which is economic inequality? Does it help us to address this issue of inequality in modern uh, market societies? Does it not? Uh, how do proponents of these ideas treat inequality challenges and what do they propose? Yeah, so I, I, I don't think it does. Um, uh, you know, there's some great Marxist critics of the identity synthesis. And I'm not a Marxist, but, but, but I learned from the way in which they look at this tradition. One really interesting one is Adolf Reed, um, an African-American political scientist uh, who has taught at the University of Pennsylvania for a very long time. Uh, and he rightly describes the nature of his ideology as race disparitarianism. So what he means by that is that a lot of the focus of his ideology ends up being on group-level disparities between different races. And you could expand that in different contexts towards disparities between different members of different religions or different gender groups and so on. Um, and I think at some level that clearly is a helpful uh, unit of analysis. I, you know, like many people who are not socialized in France, think that sometimes France would do well to think more about uh, issues uh, of race and ethnicity and so on uh, in how it understands its own country, the same way in which Americans often would do uh, a lot better to include class variables. I mean, it's still, it's really striking to me, you know, this is a research podcast, but in France you often have uh, you know, just causal models in political science um, that have a class variable, but no variable at all for whether somebody has an immigrant status or has origins outside of France, which clearly I think is causally relevant. But then in the United States, you very often have a race variable without having a class variable. Um, and I think in each of those cases, um, you're actually not able to understand what was really driving the outcome. You need to be able to distinguish those two empirically, right? Um Reed shows very interestingly is that the ideal of uh, destroying all disparities between groups can fall into a number of pitfalls. One of them is familiar to anybody who has studied political theory, political philosophy. It's called the leveling down objection. Uh, it's the idea that if we think that an inequality is uh, troubling, um, we might say we want a society of equals. Uh, but we probably don't want is a society in which both of us have a lot less than before. Um, and uh, as I argue in the book, in some contexts, a 
uh, concern with so-called equity has in fact led to serious leveling down effects in life and death situations. Um, so perhaps the most extreme example of that was when the Centers for Disease Control had to decide how to distribute sparse COVID vaccines over the course of a pandemic. And what they did was to, uh, you know, nearly every other country, including, I believe, France, basically prioritized by age. So the over 85s were up first, and the over 80s second, because by far and away the strongest predictor of mortality and other adverse health outcomes was advanced age. Uh, ACIP, the key advisory committee to the CDC in the United States, considered that possibility disproportionately white. And so, therefore, this would uh, exacerbate disparities, even though its own causal models showed that deviating from prioritizing the elderly would cause thousands more deaths. Uh, what you ended up with is a really silly system uh, where uh, a huge group of essential workers was eligible from day one, but included movie producers in Los Angeles and you know finance executives in New York and college professors in the state of Maryland, like myself, even though we were all teaching on Zoom. Um, but importantly, in the end, I'm pretty sure that it killed more non-white people as well. Because if you give uh, a shot of a vaccine to two 25-year-old Latino Uber drivers, instead of one 80-year-old Latino retiree, more Latinos are going to die. So that's the leveling down effect, right? In the attempt of creating one kind of equality, you actually worsen the outcomes for all groups. So that's sort of my objection. But the objection that Olive Reed would make is, is more straightforward. It's to say that um, you can have a, a reduction of group disparity while having a deeply socially unequal society. So if you in the United States, where about 13% of people are African-American, had 13% of billionaires be black, you might wind up with a pretty even distribution of wealth in the country. And I guess insofar as it goes, there would be an advance. But it would still be a deeply, deeply unjust society. There's, you know, 100 billionaires at the top and 13 of them are black and everybody else is really poor. That's not the kind of society we want to live in. And so, um, uh, you know, racist paritarianism, insofar as it is, should be a social goal, should be a very constrained one that is balanced by a concern for much more straightforward uh, values, like some amount of social and economic equality, and most importantly, the ability for everybody to, to thrive, the ability to everybody um, to, 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 to lead a meaningful life, to have access to health resources, to have educational opportunities, and so on. I think uh, what you're describing, especially the example uh, with uh, vaccines, is indeed deeply troubling. And uh, this is when you define the society by identity and start thinking about a common good, like in the case of vaccines. And this is actually for an economist a very important example of a public good, where if more people are um, are not vaccin vaccinated, my chances to get uh, infected and die are higher. Um, but again, the problem here is when you really don't care about the other part of the society, if you think if 10 older white people die, but we increase probability of a younger Latino Uber driver to survive by several percentage points, that's great already because we care about this person and not that person. There is no common denominator, if you, if you like. And this is what brings me to the issue of polarization. To what extent identity trap or identity synthesis um, helps us to overcome polarization or or it aggravates polarization. Yeah, this is this is you know at the heart of my concerns. I, I worry about the identity trap in part because it sometimes uh, inspires policies that are unjust on their face. I think 
um, you know, uh, I mean, actually, I, I recommend for everybody to look up the slideshow of ACIP or even to watch the meeting they had uh, during the pandemic, which is all obviously uh, publicly available and online. It's one of the most shocking documents I've come across as a political scientist because it really is terrible moral reasoning that led to very significant uh, outcomes. I think these injustices are there in themselves and they matter. But one of the big reasons why I care about this is the way in which it encourages zero-sum conflict between different identity blocks in our society and therefore will subvert any form of progress towards uh, sustaining imperfect um, but thriving diverse democracies that we have today in France and the United States and many other countries in the world. Um, now, if we return to the example of the teachers who come in and split kids, eight, seven, six-year-old kids up into a group of African-Americans, of Asian-Americans, of Latinos, of whites in, in the United States. Um, I worry about those white kids, um, not because they might be uncomfortable. I think uh, it's good to be uncomfortable as part of your education sometimes. That's fine. But because everything in history and social science teaches us that how we define our group is relatively malleable. It changes from context to context. It can be very different from one neighboring country to another neighboring country. There's great political science work on this. But once we say, hey, you and I are one group and those people over there are a different group, we're very likely to favor the interests of the in-group over those of the out-group, to go to bat for our interests and sometimes to maltreat the out-group in, in, in terrible ways. And so I think if you take these white kids and you try to um, have them, as one prestigious school puts it, own the European heritage, um, develop a white racial identity, all in the hope that they're going to become better anti-racists who disown their white privilege, I just think you won't succeed. I think you're much more likely to create racists who are fighting for their racial, quote-unquote, interests against that of other groups. So I'm really worried about the long-term social dynamics that you're setting up. The same is true when you veer away from a genuine principle of free speech, because then you get into a situation of competitive cancellation, where you say, hey, this member of our group was cancelled over some uh, impolitical remark they made. Now this other person has made a remark that we find offensive, fire him too, right? Or the right solution would be not to fire anybody and actually protect people's uh, private speech uh, uh, and political speech, even when it's unpopular. Um, so, uh, and then, uh, you know, as somebody who's been studying the rise of populism for a long time, I like to say that I'm a democracy crisis hipster. I worried about the crisis of democracy before it was cool. Um, uh, I'm very worried about the political effects of all of this. Um, you know, one question that I often get, and that I think is a natural question, is given the fact that in the United States, Donald Trump might very well be president again in 2024, and given the fact that that is very concerning, and it is very concerning to me, uh, shouldn't you just focus on, on, on the far right? And look, I mean, one point here is there's been excellent books at this point about populism, and there's a lot left to understand, but, you know, there's hundreds of books on this now. There's not a single book by an academic that's serious about this topic. So I think we need to understand it better. But the second point is that it, this is a strategic mistake. Um, uh, you know, in the United States today, more, I don't agree with judgment, but more Americans think that the Democratic Party is too extreme and think that the Republican Party is too extreme. According to analyses of the Republican vote, about 10% of Republican voters are a new kind of group of Republican voters who are predominantly young, predominantly non-white, uh, predominantly pretty progressive on social issues, but very worried about what they call uh, the hold of wokeness in mainstream institutions. And so I actually think that if you want to uh, sustain trust in political institutions, 
And if you want to beat people like Donald Trump at the ballot box, um, finding a uh, moderate or a left-wing critique of some of the bad ideas on the left is a precondition for that. The most effective way to fight one of these ideologies is to fight both at the same time. Yeah, I wanted to ask this question, but you've already answered this. So you think that identity ideology is actually good news for somebody like Donald Trump. He's actually politically benefiting from that. And uh, that's a contribution to his potential victory in 2024. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you can see that in the polls very clearly. There's there's good evidence for that. Um, And and a lot of voters simply don't trust, uh, especially in the United States, that the institutions are uh, governed in sensible ways that will reflect their values. Um, And I'm actually quite optimistic about what the average citizen believes. Uh, You know, one thing I'm always thinking about is that Perhaps you can square those two things philosophically, but I think sociologically it's very hard to square them, which is to be, on the one hand, a genuine Democrat, to actually believe in democracy as a real value, and to believe that, you know, most of your compatriots are dangerous, uh, stupid people who are racist and sexist and so on. If you really believe that second set of views, it's very hard to be a Democrat. You can somehow justify it, but, but not really. And I'm struck by how many people, and frankly, how many academics, now believe that second set of views. Um, believe that most people are uh, bad and dangerous, but we have to protect ourselves from those unwashed voters who have these uh, uh, pro- pro- troglodyte, I never know how to pronounce this word, tro- troglodyte uh, views Pro-bodite. about the world. Yeah, we, we, will, we'll, we'll, we can struggle through it together. <laughs> um, and I think that's actually wrong. If you look at uh, polls, most voters... Uh, don't think a lot about politics. Uh, they can certainly go wrong. I'm not saying that I always agree with the majority. Otherwise, I'd be schizophrenic. Um, uh, but on most important issues, uh, they are reasonable. Um, you know, in the United States, there's an interesting study about history, for example, which shows that uh, most Democrats uh, believe that George Washington and uh, other founders were great uh, people, Um who we should honor as having made a real contribution to the world. Uh, and they also believe that we should uh, mention uh, both what they did wrong in, in, in their lives and, of course, teach children in, in schools about the brutal history of chattel slavery in the United States. Um, uh, so, 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 so both sides, both Democrats and Republicans, are on board with each of those elements. The Democrats think that Republicans don't want to talk about slavery, and Republicans think the Democrats don't want to acknowledge that George Washington was somebody that 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 that, that we can honor. Um, uh, so actually, often people's views are much more nuanced than you realize. And and you know, since you are in some position of authority here at Sciences Po, I'm going to suggest you making a rule that I'm not meaning entirely seriously, but immediately make you unpopular. But I think um, social scientists should watch a focus group at least once a month. A lot of very bad research would go out of a window if people just watched a focus group once a month to actually get a little bit of a sense of how people reflect about the world. I think I think it's a great su- suggestion. I'm a quantitative social scientist, but uh, in my job, I have to talk to everybody in Science Po, and I enjoy it. And actually, on this podcast, I talk to researchers who work uh, with focus groups, and uh, in my daily uh, daily job, I also talk to plenty of researchers in different disciplines who use different uh, methodologies, and I fully agree with you that you really need to look at normal people, not just at data, not just at numbers that really can teach you quite a bit. I would like to mention uh, on the optimism note, I I would like to mention your previous book, Great Experiment, uh, 
which uh, you can treat as a pessimistic uh, pessimistic uh, narrative that it's hard to maintain democracy in a diverse society, but actually it ends on an optimistic note, uh, providing some ideas how we can uh, sustain democratic institutions in a society, no matter how diverse it is. Uh, let me challenge, though, you on the issue of malleability of identity. So identity synthesis says identity is fixed. You, well, whatever happens, you your identity is like this, my identity is like that. But every day we wake up with a different notion who I am today. Uh, on a weekend, uh, I'm, I'm a... Uh, father on a on a Monday, I, I go to work and I'm a professor. In this country, I'm a white man. In Russia, I'm actually I'm not ethnically Russian. In Russia, I'm not Russian. I'm treated somebody as an ethnic minority and not a privileged uh, um, category. To what extent people can develop new identities over lifetimes? Choose to have another identity. Would cultural appropriation concerns uh, prevent them from doing that? Is that is that something that you discuss in your book? To what extent identity is actually something we can choose, develop, evolve, and uh, to what extent identity trap prevents us from doing that? Yeah. So in the chapter about cultural appropriation, I, I make a, a few points that are relevant. The first is just that that term seems appealing because it sometimes covers uh, cases that really are unjust, but it cannot explain to us why those cases were unjust. Um, so as one sort of slightly strange example, um, there was a fraternity at a university in Texas, at Baylor, I believe, that uh, celebrated uh, what we call a Cinco de Drinco party, kind of pastiche on a Cinco de Mayo party. Um, and a bunch of these uh, uh, frat boys and their uh, female invitees turned up in sombreros or ponchos, and then some of them turned up in uh, construction vests and maids' outfits. Um, and obviously that was offensive. Um, and it was meant to be offensive. Um, but I don't think that the concept of cultural appropriation can explain why. Because um, according to cultural appropriation, it was wrong for students to wear sombreros and uh, ponchos. But it was not wrong for them to wear construction vests and maze outfits. Because after all, those are not part of Latino culture. I suppose a maze outfit is sort of French, or I don't know exactly what the origin is, but it's not Latino, Right. So, so the concept would say that one of these sets of things is wrong and the other set of things is not wrong. But that, I think, clearly misdescribes the case. If anything, the maid's outfit or the construction vest is more offensive than the poncho or the sombrero. It might both be offensive, but to my sense, they're equally or perhaps more offensive. And the reason is that what was actually wrong about this was not cultural appropriation. It was the uh, communicated intent of the students to say that there's something ridiculous about Latinos or that they're not... Uh, uh, you know, uh, that, that they're not adept at sort of middle class or white collar jobs, that the natural station of the Latino fellow students is to be maids or construction workers, right? That's what was offensive about it. And so the, the terminology of cultural appropriation doesn't actually help us to describe what is wrong in society or how to fix it. Um, now, uh, another problem of it is that in the way you anticipate it, uh, needs to draw very simplistic boundaries around cultures that both enclose those who are perceived as being part of a culture in one set of cultural expectations, but also spell trouble for people who have a more complicated set of identities. So uh, when I was teaching at uh, Ivy League University, that I'll uh, leave unnamed, um, 
uh, I had a student, um, and when we discussed cultural appropriation in class, and I signed texts that argue for the concept and against the concept, she said, well, I kind of have a personal story to share. And she'd done an internship at the art museum of that university. Uh, and they'd asked the interns to recreate some of the uh, uh, exhibits in their own way um, as a way of engaging you know, people. Um, and she did that. Um, her mother is a Chinese immigrant to the United States, and she did a self-portrait of her mother and herself um, commenting on kind of beauty standards. It's a photograph that is, um, you know, a, a, a twist on a, a similar photograph in the collection of this museum. The director of the museum said, wonderful, you did a beautiful job. It'll go up on the website in a few days. And then she got a very angry email from an Asian-American curator at the museum saying, how dare you do this? Um, this is cultural appropriation. You did something very morally wrong. And you said, I, I don't understand. There must be a misunderstanding. The woman in this photograph is my mother. She's a Chinese immigrant. Yes, but your dad is not Chinese. So that in, sounds racist to me. So in effect, this <laughs> Ivy League university was yeah. applying a racial purity mm -hmm. test mm -hmm. on who belongs in this group, right? The student thought of herself as Asian-American, is of Chinese heritage, speaks Chinese. But no, because her father is not Chinese, somehow it doesn't count. Right? This is the kind of rigidity to which this ideology will, I think, inevitably lead. And so what's the, a better way of thinking about identity? I have no problem with the fact that people's identities are, of course, shaped by their cultural background and their ancestry in important ways, right? Um, it's wonderful that in, that in a place like Paris, people uh, continue to speak the language of their ancestors, that... Um, they might have different uh, religions, different culinary traditions, all kinds of things that connects them to their ancestors. And, 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 and that's a good thing. But they can't be reduced to that. They certainly can't be reduced to that in how the state treats them. They shouldn't be reduced to that in how we interact with each other. And I think in an ideal society, we have a double freedom, which is the freedom to define ourselves by the groups into which we're born, if we want to. But also the freedom not to do that. Also the freedom to say, actually, uh, I come from this or that group, my parents have this or that religion, but I'm going to go and strike out and have a very different life. Um, and I think in a generally liberal and generally free society, people are free to, to do one or the other and uh, gain equal respect for, for both choices. Thank you very much. Thank you. Science. Science.